Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, James chapter 4, verses 13, down to the end of 5, chapter 5, verse 6. So James chapter 4, we're going to start reading at verse 13. We're going to read down to the end of chapter 5, verse 6. This is the Word of God. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Before we uh, look at this passage together, we'll pray. Just before that, just a quick note. Uh, Today, this Sunday is the last Sunday for those of you who are... uh, dropping off one of the shoeboxes for Samaritan's Purse. Uh, This is the last Sunday in which they can be collected here at the church. Uh, They go out next Saturday, so next Sunday it's too late uh, to bring them in. But if you still have one at home, uh, you can drop it off here at the church office throughout the week uh, if that's what you would like to do. So next Sunday it's too late, uh, but you have until sort of the end of this week to drop them off in the office if you haven't done so already. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would ask that uh, by your Spirit, you would open up your Word to us, help us understand it. Lord, uh, help us also to apply it well. Help us to be people who uh, truly want to do what your Word says, uh, not to be hearers only, but who want to understand uh, the message in your Word so that we can know who you are, and we can also see who we are in sort of the the searching spotlight of your holiness and purity. And then, Lord, meet us with grace to give us the strength that's required uh, to walk in the ways that you would have us to walk, uh, to amend the things that require amendment, and to uh, live out in sort of robust fullness and thoroughness the vision of life that you have for your people here in this world. We confess, Father, uh, that there are... There are so many things in our 
societal environment that we simply take for granted. Uh, we, we confess that we find ourselves uh, immersed and emerged in a political and sociological and economic system with infrastructure and with rules and, and ways of governance that, Lord, we did not pick, and we also many times don't know what to do about. We recognize that there is a sense in which we are all complicit in some social, political, and economic things which are displeasing to you. And so, Father, we, we want to live obedient lives. We want to live well and wisely. But sometimes we don't even recognize the problems that are in front of us. So, Father, give us great insight and wisdom. Uh, open our eyes to see and then give us the moral fortitude and grace required uh, to take steps to walk in ways that are pleasing and honoring to you. Do this in part through the instrumentality of your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason that we're taking uh, chapter 4, 13 through 17 with chapter 5, 1 through 6 is that they are uh, sort of linguistically and thematically joined. So, chapter 4, verse 13, depending on your translation, will say either, come now, or now listen, or something along those lines. The exact same expression begins chapter 5, verse 1. And so, what James is doing is, is he is calling people's attention to make sure that they are listening and hearing, and he does it in a symmetrical way. This hangs together. And then, I think, uh, if you actually track out the theme of both sections, there is a very strong parallel and even overlap. So, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is extending the teaching in chapter 4, 13 through 17. They actually hang together. So, how are we supposed to take this? I mean, the, the very obvious point of the text seems to be uh, that those who are being addressed need to be scathingly rebuked for their attitude towards wealth and money. You, you, you have to be really creative to read the text and not see that. And so you look at this, and you say, Here, here's a sort of blistering denunciation of those who have become rich in certain ways. And, and that becomes the first caveat that's very important. It's people who have become rich in certain ways. So, we know in other scriptures, the book of Proverbs, for example, Proverbs is filled with injunctions and exhortations to be wise and to make plans. So, James 4, 13 through 17 is not saying don't make plans. It's not saying don't have, have a vision of the future. It's not saying sort of just, just wake up every day with no thought for tomorrow whatsoever and just see what unfolds. I mean, uh, if that was the case, then this would be ruling out any kind of uh, career. It would be ruling out any kind of move. It would be ruling out any kind of uh, pursuit of education, for example. And so, this is not saying anything like it's wicked to make plans. Likewise, it's not saying it's wicked to make money. 
You know, Proverbs is, again, filled with injunctions uh, that th- those who are wise are partly marked by their diligence. They're partly marked by working hard and earning what they can. They're partly marked even for putting away and saving. And they put away and save precisely because they are planning for the future. You, you don't save unless you have an eye for the day after today. And so, we again, James is not saying, look, it's wicked to, to make plans, it's wicked to make money, it's wicked to save. He's not saying anything like that at all. Nevertheless, he is saying that there need to be very real constraints on the attitude we have when we make future plans, and also there need to be very real constraints on what those plans will contain in terms of content. So the first thing. There are people who are saying, you know, oh, I'm just going to go off to university and I'm going to get this kind of degree. And then after I put in my four years, I'll go to graduate school or I'll move, depending on what you want to do, or, or move into career. And, and, and then I'll, I'll have this type of salary in this type of job. And the place to live is this city. And so I sort of map out my life and I'm just going to go and pursue those sorts of things. I have my nice little life just sort of planned right out. And you can do all of that. And people do all of that without any reference whatsoever to the transitory nature of life and the fact that we are not in sovereign control of our lifespan. There are all kinds of things that take place which force us into circumstances and decisions that in an ideal world we absolutely would not choose. So, there were an awful lot of 14-year-olds in grade 9 in 1935 who had their life planned out in terms of Oxford, Cambridge, University of Edinburgh, and when they graduated high school, they were conscripted in England into the army to fight in the Second World War. That's a massive life difference. That's a massive change over which those students had no control whatsoever. And a number of them died. All those long-range plans, well, well, in in a couple years, I'm just going to move to Oxford, and then four years later, I'll get my degree, and that will set me on the path to graduate school, and then I'll get this career, and then I'll move to this. It was all gone. What is your life? You are a mist that rises up and then vanishes. Any of you who uh, enjoy camping or canoeing or have ever seen a pond or a puddle in the morning know that steam can rise up, the mist can rise up, and it's lovely, and then in just a little bit, it's gone. That's the comparison. That's the analogy with your life. Now, it's not the only analogy with your life, right? But this is the one that's deployed here. Very transitory. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Remember, we were working through Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 40. The people are like what? What's the comparison there? Grass. Exactly. Mist and grass. Very transitory things. Uh, they're, they're here, then they're gone. That's your life. You are a mist. You are grass. You can think about the parable of the rich fool. 
and, and if you were in Sunday school this morning, uh, you know how easy it is to interpret parables. So, so if you, you, we look at the parable of the rich fool, and here's someone who has this great harvest, you know, this tremendous harvest, and they have this inner monologue. Uh, you know, what will I do with all of my wealth? Now, I know what I will do. I will. You should have read through the first person pronouns in that text are astounding how this person is just chatting away to himself about all of his riches and what he's going to do for himself. All, all, my barns are too small. I'll tear them down. I'll build bigger barns. I'll put it all away and then I'll say to myself, self, this is great. You can just sort of retire and live in luxury until the end of your days. God says, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Who will enjoy this wealth? Who will get this wealth that you have set aside for yourself? This man grows in riches with not a single thought to God and not a single thought to how he can use his extra wealth to bless anyone else on the face of the earth. It is entirely self-centered. The more I get, the more there is for me. And God says, why are you living that way? You you have one life, you have one opportunity to use things for enjoyment, yes, but in a way which pleases and honors me with reference to being a blessing to other people. You get one shot at that. If all you do is stockpile in a selfish way, and you think that you're you're stockpiling because you're going to sort of tease out all this material comfort and luxury over a course of a large number of years, you're a fool because your heart is wrong in reference to God. You don't care about anyone else, but also you don't know how long you're going to live. You need to make sure, part of the point of that parable is make sure you're not living for this life. Make sure you're actually ready to stand before God. Because it is, it is inevitable that you will one day. You don't know when that day will be. Might be today. Then who will enjoy all these plans, all these things you've been living for. In other words, the point of the text here with James as well is, look, you need to make sure you hold things in proper biblical priority and balance. It is frightening how quickly things that are... Sort of good in themselves or neutral, can become idols and evil for us, depending on our attitude towards them. And in the Western world, certainly, if there was ever a society, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but if ever there was a society where people need to be warned about grotesque accumulation of material goods and self-indulgence, it's us. And I don't say hear me very carefully. I don't say it's you. I say it's us. This is going to be one of the temptations precisely because it's so culturally acceptable and normative. It's one of the great temptations for Christians, so much so that they might not even see it, might not even recognize that Western 21st century values when it comes to money and accumulation of goods is shockingly different from the Bible. But we spend so much of our time just living and breathing in the world of our advertisements and investments in the Western world. We often don't let the Bible actually shape our view of these things. It's very something that we have to do uh, self-consciously. You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, what you ought to do is you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, 
this is often taken as one of the great verses to sort of subsume us under the sovereignty of God, and, and rightly so. God is sovereign. God has a plan for the world. Uh, You are not going to undo the plan of God, no matter how much you plan and scheme and all of the rest. So, what you ought to do is you ought to recognize your life, your days really are in the hands of God. Okay? And so, you can't just sort of unilaterally arrogate to yourself the authority and power in the universe to do whatever it is that you want. You don't even, your, your life is a mist. You don't even know where you're going to be tomorrow, let alone a year from now or a decade from now. And so, what you ought to do is you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. I mean, many of us have, have experiences of having made plans, and then there's sickness, or there's a death uh, in the family, or there's something that comes up that you have no control over whatsoever. And and some of these things have been planned for for a really long time. Things have been looked forward to for a really long time, and then you you just realize that, that there's just so many variables you don't control. I, I can make my plans, but, but whether or not they'll actually come to fruition is whether or not the Lord wills. He's the one who controls those sorts of variables, not us. As it is, verse 16, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now, this seems to actually, though, move the discussion beyond just sort of the theological, philosophical recognition that there are a lot of things in the world that we can't control, and that it's according to the Lord's will that we'll be able to live and do this or that. This seems to move the discussion towards the ethical will of God. That is, it is not merely a matter of recognizing that unless God gives you the breath of life and sustains your existence uh, and, and puts certain variables in, in place, that you're not going to be alive or that you're not going to be able to function and do certain things. It, it's not merely saying that. It's, it's condemning for boasting, literally, actually, the text will, more literally, the text will say, you glory in your arrogances. Is you're, you're, all of your boasting, all of your plans represent arrogant scheming. Things that you can't say it is the Lord's will. It's not merely a matter then of recognizing sort of the sovereignty of God and our lack of control. It's also being able to say, sort of stamping all of your plans with, this is something I can do according to the will of God. That is his ethical, moral will. So, for example... You can't decide that you are going to run off somewhere and start an organized crime syndicate, Lord willing. Now, that might be a reasonably extreme example, but that's the sort of thing he's saying here. I mean, there are certain business practices that you just cannot engage in and say, well, Lord willing, the Lord isn't willing in an ethical, moral sense. And so, you know, now, now. What you'll have to do, because I, I don't have time, and, and I'd, rather, I'd rather stay employed. You need to start backing that up, though, in terms of, all right, so, 
Lord willing, does, does the Lord want me to sign up for that mafia hitman training program? No. That's the easy one. But is there nothing else besides murder that might fall into that? When does complicity, how does complicity factor in? Are there other types of jobs which, although they produce products that people buy, engage in really harmful manufacturing processes globally that really exploit poor and marginalized people and also have horrific environmental impacts. What about jobs like that? What about investment portfolios that support companies that engage in those kinds of practices? Lord willing, the stock market will go up. Well, morally? In other words, I think there's a massive assumption that there's a lot of neutrality in some of these practices when really there isn't. Now, I am not suggesting it is wrong to, to invest in the stock market. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting it is wrong you know, to work for an, an, an international company. I'm suggesting that some of these things may be worth careful thought and actual investigation in looking into things and analyzing these things biblically, or at least attempting to, instead of just assuming that, that wherever you can get work, it's fine. Now, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This text, actually, there's all kinds of connectors in Greek, which if you, if you translated every connector in Greek, you would make the, the Bible almost unreadable, the New Testament almost unreadable uh, in English. But the connector in this one probably should be translated and isn't, uh, in the NIV at least. It starts, the verse 17 starts with a, a connector word, therefore. Therefore, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. What that is doing is, I think, logically, it is connecting to what you've just been told. In other words, look, if you know that you're supposed to make your life plans according to the Lord's will and you don't do that, it is sin for you. You know the good you ought to do, and you don't do it in that regard, it's sin for you. Now, that's a very specific application of what is a general principle. That is, when you know the good you ought to do, and you don't do it, that's also sin. And we still talk, we still use this language a little bit today, but older theologians used to talk more, uh, a lot more frequently about sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of commission are the things you actually go out and do, right? And, and the reality is, no, like depending on how you can cons- what you consider a sinful act, you you can start to take a little bit of pride maybe in not committing lots of overt, explicit, obvious sins. You do pretty well that way. But the kicker are the sins of omission, the good things you ought to do and leave undone things you omit to do that you should do. So, while you might not go out and commit robbery, you might omit spending time with God and His Word. While you might not go out and, and 
actively defraud someone, one of the great sins of omission that you find in the book of James is, here's your neighbor who needs help, and you don't help them. And again, today, in a globalized, digitalized world, the question of who is our neighbor and who ought we to be helping takes on a whole new contour and layer of meaning than it ever has before in the history of the world, precisely because we have knowledge of things around the world and immediate access to alleviate problems the other side of the world that in in, in centuries past, you didn't even know there was a problem over there. You didn't even know that part of the world existed. And now today, you can transfer funds anywhere on earth to help people who are starving. Whenever, whenever there's you know, a, a massive flood or earthquake or, or tsunami or whatever it is, whenever there's a huge weather event and, and people die and people are left homeless and people need help, immediately all you need is your cell phone and you can give to help. No one else in the history of the world until this generation had that kind of responsibility. And then try to find out how, how do you navigate that? How do you be wise with that? Because the other thing is, if you gave substantially every time there was a problem, you would, by the end of the year, be destitute yourself and in need of help. So how do you balance it? I only ask the question. <laughs> it, it, it's up to you to, to sort that out this week. This week. No time. You have this week to sort it out. Okay, maybe you, you need to sort it out. Now listen. Linguistic connection, also thematic. Because in the same way that the business people, you say, we're going to go to this and that city, carry on a year there, do this business and make money. You're still dealing with these sorts of folk. Now listen, you rich people, you rich business people who have violated the will of God. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. So talk about planning for the future It's, here's your future, it's miserable, misery is coming, so weep and wail now. The word wail here, the the, the word that's used that we translate as wail, is only found in the Old Testament in the context of prophetic judgment. So the prophets are telling people to wail because of the judgment of God that's coming. That's the word that's used here. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. I mean, if if moths are going to eat your clothes, you may as well not have Armani suits, right? Uh, and and and. You, you may, and if anyone has an Armani suit, I'm, I'm not talking to you specifically. What I'm saying is, the reality is, no matter how much money you put into to wardrobe and, and home and material goods, moths don't really care. The fire that burns things down doesn't really care. Now, Jesus says, Destroy yourself for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Thieves who break in to steal do care. 
about the quality of your goods. I know this because a number of years ago, uh, when I was away from my home for a night, uh, someone uh, broke in the front door and robbed my house. And when I had to f- talk to the insurance agent filing the claim, I began to realize something. I really hadn't had anything worth stealing, and the thief thought so too. <laughs> Just trying to say, um, so, so we're going over this list of things, electronics and all the rest, and, and they say, you know, well, I think they, they took my laptop, okay? And the agent says, the TV? No, they left that. <laughs> uh, here's one of those, they sell like the, do- like the knobs and the dials, you know? And, 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 and a big five CD changer, you know, back when you had those sorts of things and speakers. And, well, it had been on a piano. And they, they took it off the piano, left it on the floor. Like, they didn't even, didn't even bother walking out with it. You know, so you sort of look at that and you go, actually, if people are going to break into your house, the cheaper your stuff, the better it is for you. Like, they don't even want it. You know, moths and rust, not so much. You know, the moths will eat, they'll eat designer labels, they'll eat anything. You know, the fire will burn up anything. Thieves might actually leave you your goods if they're not worth anything at all. But the reality is, whether it's, it's moth or rust or thieves, like, or whether all of your stuff is in perfectly good condition because you, you just went on a massive shopping spree. At some point, you're leaving this world. At some point, you are going to have that mist dissipate finally in the morning sun. And it's just there, just, just left. All these material goods. And if you have stored them up for yourself and lived in luxury and self-indulgence for yourself, then all of those things will be part of the evidence against you on the day of judgment. Their corrosion will testify against you. In other words, why have these things corroded? Why have moths eaten them? Why has rust destroyed them? It's because you didn't need them and you weren't using them. They just sat. They were just hoarded. And James says, the fact that you have hoarded these things in the last days, interesting eschatological note there, the New Testament already sees us as being in the last days, in the New Testament time and extending forward. Now, in the last days, what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be living in reference to the fact that the very next thing, the next big moment in God's salvation redemptive plan is the return of Christ. You need to be ready for the return of Christ. And so what you don't want is you don't want to anchor yourself here in this world with all kinds of material things. You don't want to live for those things. You want to use wealth and material goods properly because there is a proper way of using it. The text isn't talking about that. The text is assuming there is and that these things are being violated. But there is a proper use of these things. And we need to live in such a way that we can participate in a physical material world with physical material goods and and a physical material economy, but yet have utter reference to God in how we act towards these things, the choices we make, and almost most importantly of all, the attitude that we bear towards them. 
Now, how did these, how did these rich people get so rich? The wages you failed to pay the, those who mowed your fields have cried out against you. This also anchors the thought world of the text in the Old Testament prophets. Because in the Old Testament prophets, the rich are growing rich because they are grinding down the poor. They are not paying them properly. They're, they're just breaking them down as much as they can, pro- doubtlessly justifying it like, well, if, if I didn't pay them the little bit I'm paying them, they wouldn't have any job at all. You know, they're still better off, even though I'm not paying them what I would have paid them over there. You know, somehow there's some justification for it, and they're just grinding them down. Or here, not even paying them at all. And when we talk about these sort of contexts where, you know, in, in the past and even in lots of places in the world today, I remember being in South Africa and, and seeing, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people sort of in a public square waiting to be picked up as day laborers to be taken out somewhere to work. And, you know, a pickup truck comes by and, and five people or ten people jump in the back or whatever it is, however many workers the, the guy needs. They go off to the field and they work. Well, it's pretty easy at the end of the day to drop them back off and say, listen, I'll meet you here tomorrow. We have more work, you know, for tomorrow. Then I'll pay you. And just not show up to pick them up again. So you're getting rich because you are getting all kinds of work for free. Or, or you're grinding people down. You're, you're taking advantage and exploiting desperate people who will work for, for, for almost anything. And you're growing rich and rich and rich because of this. Or perhaps also abusing the judicial system. You know, so we know in the Old Testament, some of, these, some of the poor people, they'd go to court, but, but the rich people could afford, you know, the lawyers, uh, some things never change, and, or else they could bribe the corrupt judges. And so they're growing rich by abusing the system. That is, they're growing rich by sinning and then perpetuating sin. They're adding layer to layer of their injustice and wickedness. But now the cries of the harvesters, the cries of the workers, have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You know, that is, you know, the, the cries, and this is something which is, which is perpetual in our world. The, the cries of those who are ground down in all kinds of injustice. You know, what did you do? Like, like, like what did you do in, in, in Europe in the Second World War when you were Jewish and, and the Nazis came in and, and occupied the places where you were? Who did you appeal to? Who did you go to for help? The police? The army? The, the, the judges? Who did you go to? The whole judicial system was against you. All of the power was against you. You cried out, but to who? No, the, the cries of the weak so often in our world can only arise to the human ears in the corridors of power who are their abusers. But there is one who is a judge above the judges, the Lord Almighty. And now the cries of those poor and exploited people have reached His ears. He has the power and the wisdom and the authority to judge properly. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And make no mistake, in slightly different words, that is actually 
the economic dream that's being fostered in North American society. Live on earth with as much luxury and indulgence as you can. Here, it's a damnable thing. It is a condemnation. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. It's like, like, who could do that? Who could, who could live on earth in luxury and self-indulgence? In these last days, the, 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 the evil in the heart to live that way, to James, is just unthinkable. It runs, runs against all the prophetic tradition. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Shame on you. What you've really been doing in the buffet line of life is you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. In other words, all of those things that the world prides itself on, zip code and fancy car and, and fancy goods and just, and just luxury and all of the rest, just more from self-indulgence, you know, just whatever I want, I get. James says that's, that's like taking a, you know, a, a prize cow, a calf, and, and just keep feeding it. Just keep feeding it. Make it eat as much as it will. I mean, you'll fatten it up. You know, just, just keep forcing in the calories. Let it balloon up, and then, then one day, you know, the day of slaughter, it will, be, it will be big and ready and fat and succulent. That's the image, not, not an overly attractive one. That, that the rich who are living in... in in luxury and self-indulgence are really like a, like a you know, cow that lacks self-control at the manger, fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Here, the, the idea is basically, look, you deprive people of fair wages. Whether you may are responsible for the business decisions or you are responsible for the purchasing decisions, you support things that deprive people of their fair wages, then you are supporting things that deprive people of their livelihood. And if you support things that deprive people of a fair livelihood, then what you're doing is functionally you're murdering them. You are devaluing their life. You'd rather have cheap goods than have this person have the staples required to live. Some of the rabbis would say, If you deprive a poor man of his bread, you are guilty of bloodshed. To deprive a a worker of his wages is to be guilty of murder. That's what James is saying. Now, what do we today do with this? Because this is a strong message. James is not pulling punches here. Remember at the beginning of the book when he talks about not showing favoritism? He is not guilty of showing favoritism to the rich in what he says here. So what do we do with it? Well, a good place to start is with asking questions. Because, you know, one of the easiest things to do, one of the very easiest things to do is make laws and then just be legalistic. Well, I'll just give 10%. 
And some people, the same way that we have a graduated income tax, uh, some people believe that there should be sort of like graduated tithing. So, uh, you know, you, you, you get a certain amount of money, and then everything over that you should get 15% or 20% or 50% or whatever. I mean, someone's making a million dollars a year, or someone's netting a million dollars a year, and they give away $500,000 a year, they still have an awful lot more to live on than the person who's, you know, netting 45000 a year or whatever. So some people look at that and they go, say, God, it's not just about the percentage. It's about, you know, how much you have to left to live on and all of the rest. Well, maybe. But then when do you decide? When do you decide when too much is too much? I mean, who, who, makes, who makes those decisions about what $10,000 range starts to then become 11% and 12% and all of the rest? I mean, no one is in a position to actually make that kind of decision. At least about anyone else. Doug Moo, one of, one of evangelicalism's finest New Testament scholars, says this, In the Western world, where amassing material wealth is not only condoned but admired, we Christians need to come to grips with this point in James and ask ourselves seriously, when do we have too much? That's a good place to start. Just a question, not a law. When do we have too much? Recognizing that our society, partly the economy in our society, is predicated on getting people to buy things they don't need. Now, let me say this too, because I'm not an economist. One of the things that we desperately need, I mean, desperately, we desperately need Christian economists. We, we need Christians in every area of life. And there, there is nothing particularly holy whatsoever in terms of being, you know, pastor, teacher, missionary, or whatever, the, you know, the way that you should be cast. If you really want to follow God, you know, then, then, then be a pastor. There's always a little bit self, you know, you know it's a little, little, just a little self-gratifying that the pastor's the one saying that, right? You know, so it's not just, well, go into vocational ministry if you want to serve God. It's, you have to serve God. There's a whole world, there's domains and spheres in all kinds of places that require godly thought and biblical principles to be applied. So, Christians, I mean, the, the reality is, you know, most of us, you know, can't organize, could not organize an economy of our life dependent on it. And this, is, this is one of the baffling things. I mean, we just had an election, right? Uh, this, is one of the, this is one of the great things about democracy. It's fantastic. People, like, a lot of us, we don't even know how to balance our bank books but we know who should be the governing power running the entire national budget. That's crazy. Like, we can't even get along with our neighbor. Like, we have this horrible dispute about, well, you know, who shovels the sidewalk up until what point when the snow falls? And, like, and we think that we should be picking the people who run international relations and have to declare war? That's crazy. Like, we don't know anything about domestic policy, foreign policy, economic policy. We just don't know. But surely there must be people who understand economics who can look at an economy and say, from a Christian perspective, no, no, that's not how you organize it. No, we, we, we need to work within the system to reform the system. Where do you begin? I don't know. But surely it's not perfect. Surely I don't 
think you can say about everything about our society in terms of James 4, 13 through 17, God willing, it will keep running this way. And so who's going to speak up for that if it's not going to be Christians who are informed about economics? It's not me. To be a Christian to bring good reformed economics, you need to understand economics. And I don't. But maybe some of you do. Or maybe some of you can. When's the last time we really, really encouraged our university students to go to university to get a degree to make a difference? Instead of just saying, well, you know, here, here's the career paths. Here are the jobs that, here, you know, here are where the jobs are. Yeah, jobs are important. I'm not, I'm not disputing that. But when's the last time we encourage someone, you know what? Yes, you're really smart. You could make more money doing this. But you know what? I think the real need where you could really be a blessing to the world is here. Like, does that ever get factored in anywhere when we're giving people guidance for their future? Ever. Where can you best serve God? Where can you best be a blessing to other people? Where are the real needs in our society? Where can you give, contribute with gifts? Not just where will you make the most money. Not just where is the most job security. Not just where are the projections for the future. But where can you actually, by God's grace, make a real difference that matters? The university says, I would plead with you that as you make your plans for life, it's not wrong to make plans for studying hard and for graduating and where you want to live and all the rest, but don't leave the will of God ethically speaking out of it. Not just if God gives me life. Yes, that's, that, that's assumed. But what does God actually want you to do? How can your life count? Factor that in. It's not God's will. It is not God's will. I say this clearly. This is not a question. This is a statement. It is not God's will for us to prioritize rampant materialism and the accumulating of all kinds of goods so that we can just live in more luxury and self-indulgence. That is not God's will. And where the church looks just like the world in terms of consumption, the church needs to repent. Overconsumption, which destroys our bodies and destroys our souls and, and distracts our minds and destroys our environment, is not God's will in any way for anyone. But the positive side is there is an assumption in this text that as much as you can sin against God in all these categories, you can sin against God in these categories precisely because there is a better and right and God-honoring way of living with all of these things. So, is it wrong to make money? Absolutely not. But we need to ask the question, how do we make money? How do we spend money? And why? What's the attitude? What's the reason behind it? The truth is, your life is a transient little mist. But you have, in that time, an incredible opportunity to actually live a life that counts. 
It's not because you have so much time. None of us know how much time we have. It's because God gives you qualitative opportunities. It's not quantity of days. It's quality of hours. It's what you do and why you do it. And so the glorious thing is this. The world lives in many ways for material comfort. Materialism is an idol of our society, and God offers you something infinitely better. He offers you something infinitely better. And so you can live a life that matters. You can live a life that honors God. You really can. You can live a life that's a blessing to other people. You really can. So much better than self-indulgence, so much better than luxury, so much better than materialism. You, you, you just, just These things are real, but you don't need to live for them, thank God. You can accept things as blessings from the hand of God, but not as your idol. As a means through which you are thankful, as a means through which you can be a blessing to other people. In other words, the fundamental... Christian view of money in many ways is once your necessities are taken care of, you're looking not for how many luxuries you can add to it. You're looking for how you can maximally be a good steward in a way which blesses other people. And then the exciting thing is, man, if you're good, if you're good with money, if you're good with business, you earn lots and lots and lots and lots you can bless more and more and more and more. It's outward focused, though. It's not focused on the self. It's a Latin phrase, uh, Deo Valente. Often in older writings, you'll see theologians who will, who will end their writing with, with the phrase, or with the two letters DV. It's for Deo Valente, meaning God willing. What they meant was as they made all their plans, we'll do these things, Lord willing, God willing, God willing, Dio Valente, Dio Valente, DV. That's something for us to recapture, I think. God willing. In terms of sovereignty, yes, but also in terms of ethically, particularly in this context when it comes to our economic decisions. I'm going to ask our musicians to come at this time, and lead us in our closing song. Father, we are reminded that uh, James, early on in his letter, says that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask you. You give generously to all without finding fault. And Lord, we, we do want to need wisdom to live well in this world, to know your will, and also to do it. So we pray that you will strengthen us. We thank you for grace and for forgiveness. We pray that where our attitudes reflect society arrayed against you, you will correct us. But also, Lord, help us to be light. Thank you for opportunities to be in this world. Thank you for opportunities to be in the marketplace and to be in in business and work where we have opportunities to show others uh, a different way, a, a different way of prioritizing and valuing. Be with us, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to witness well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in grace and peace.